Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host, Denise Messenger, for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Well, hello, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today, which is January 28th, 2016. We're going to be talking about a, actually a fascinating subject. And um, we have with us today Dr. Bab, Bob Back-Devant. I hope I got that right. I probably didn't. But at any rate, um, we're going to be talking about gynecomastia and he'll be talking to us about this breast surgery for men and the treatment that he has surgically perfected over the years. He got started at a very young age and he really had a fascination for the arts and the sciences. But then when he went on to pursue an Ivy League education at the University of Pennsylvania, he double majored in chemistry and fine arts. And this really set the pace for him because he then graduated magna cum laude from the University of Pennsylvania and he was really recognized for his outstanding achievements and he therefore was became a member of the Phi Beta Kappa. He then went on to a top medical school at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and this is where he, he learned all his surgical specialties. After he earned his doctorate of medicine, he then went on to the prestigious Cleveland Clinic Foundation, where he completed a full general surgery um, training program. And the kind of list goes on and on with him. He's just really amazing. And uh, now he's, of course, involved in all the facets of plastic surgery that are related to neck and breast reconstruction and probably some palate repair, et cetera. So let me bring him onto our show now. Hello there. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Denise. How are you? Thank you for having me. We are doing just great today. Again, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day. You probably hop from one surgery to the to the next, I would assume. Yeah, I had a couple of surgeries. In fact, uh, did surgery on uh, the topic of our discussion today, gynecomastia. So I just finished maybe about an hour ago or so. With well, my let's last talk surgery. about that. I really, um, I really want our listeners to have a full understanding of what this is. Yeah, so it's interesting. It's um, it's one of these areas of plastic surgery that I, I devote a significant amount of my practice to, and you know, it's really an under under kind of recognized um, uh, facet of uh, plastic surgery. Really, anything related to men and plastic surgery is typically under-recognized. But essentially, you know, gynecomastia, um, what it means, it it actually comes from Greek words, uh, gyne and mastia, which refers literally to a female breast. And so 
in men, you can understand that would not be uh, ideal, and it just means any male chest that has the shape or look of a female breast. And my my kind of um, evolution into becoming a, a quite a specialist in this field kind of took on maybe about five six years ago, and I I was having discussions with other you know patients of mine, male patients who were coming in for other things, whether it was facial you know surgery, whether it was liposuction, whether it was injectables. And, you know, a few of them started mentioning their chests, and, and it was interesting to me. Um, I started searching around, and I'm, I'm currently in Beverly Hills, um, and I was searching around to see who really specializes in this. And, and really no one in, in my proximity um, concentrates on this type. And so I, I thought this was a, a really underserved population. And so I started to really focus on this um, maybe about five, six years ago. And year on year, the, the the cases have increased tremendously to to last year where I've done actually probably over 150 of these cases alone. Um, it's a and, lot. You know, I see. Yeah, it, it is a lot, especially when most plastic surgeons maybe do between one and five a year at the most. Um, and I think it's it's important because obviously the more you do any surgery, or really the more you do anything in life, the better you get. The the, mm-hmm. the the, the more predictable your results, and the and the more accurately you can treat patients coming in for this procedure. I guess my question to you is, how does this develop in men? Yeah, so that's a, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, there there are a lot of lot of different causes for gynecomastia. And, and that's really the most important question for me to answer in the consultation because it kind of gives me an insight in how to best treat it. And I always tell guys, you know, you can't do the same surgery on everybody and get consistent mm-hmm. results. And so I ask a lot of questions about um, different medications, family history, um, whether they're taking anything, um, you know, as far as steroids and or growth hormone, um, whether they have any history of uh different tumors, such as testicular tumors, um, thyroid conditions. There's a, a whole list of things. But I'll tell you this. In my practice, you know, there are two main causes of, of gynecomastia, which causes men to, to come to me. One is um, using steroids or pro-hormones or testosterone boosters. Um, again, being in Los Angeles, there's, there's a lot of people that are very much into fitness. And, and, and so that's one. But I think even more common than that is something I I term physiologic gynecomastia. And really what that means is that, you know, there are three times in a man's life where we're susceptible to having gynecomastia. One is when we're first born, and that's because we still have our our mother's hormones still circulating in us, and that's why you see a lot of newborn baby boys with little boobs. And then by the time they're two or three, they're pretty flat. And then another time is the other end, when we're in our 50s, 60s, in some men, the testosterone level just naturally can start to decrease and cause a hormone imbalance. But by far, far and away, the most common time is during puberty. And some studies show that up to 60% of boys going through puberty get some form of gynecomastia. And, um, you know, I see a lot of teenage boys in, in my practice, in, and I ask them one thing, it's, how long have you had it? And mm-hmm. the reason why I ask them that is because in a majority of these boys going through puberty, over 98%, it goes away after two, three years. And so if they haven't had it for that long, there's no need to operate because you'll oh. be doing a lot of unnecessary operations. And a lot of boys literally grow out of it. Um, my, That's one good. of my kids, yeah, one of my, one of my sons had it uh, when he was 
you know, going through puberty. And he grew out of it after a couple of years. And so it's a very common thing during during that age. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of kids that I see that have had it for three, four, five years, and they're still in their teens and they're in high school. And because I have so much experience with this surgery and and with this disorder, I do take on those cases, even when they're 16 or 17, where a lot of plastic surgeons would not because they maybe mm-hmm. don't do enough, um, and they just say, wait till you're an adult. And I uh. think really, Denise, yeah, I mean, I think really, Denise, the, the problem is when you're a teenager and you're dealing with this, I mean, we've all been teenagers, and it's hard enough to be a teenager and getting through all the kind of like the, the social, you know, the social stuff with being a teenager. And I think having gynecomastia and, you know, with bullying being such an issue, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's really important to, to treat these, these teenage guys who are coming in as, you know, as individual cases and, and not just throw them into a lump and say, just wait till you're an adult to treat this. If they've literally had it for over three, four years, it's not going to get, and there's no other underlying cause. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no reason to wait until they're 20, 22. And why put them through that psychosocial kind of stress that they're dealing with, you know, ha- carrying this around and being teased? You know, I do these surgeries if they meet those criteria of having it at least three years and having no, a normal hormone panel and no other causes of it. Yeah, I was going to ask you if their hormone panels were normal. Yeah, and, you know, there's I don't get hormone panels on every guy who comes in my office, there are certain questions that I ask during the consultation that will mm-hmm. raise a little, bit of a, a little bit of a red flag, um, things that might trigger me thinking that they have a low testosterone level or just the way they look. Sometimes they may have a you know, more feminine look or if they're complaining of um, you know, some type, type of drainage from their nipple, especially milky type of drainage, that will stimulate me to get a hormone panel. But typically in teenage boys, I... I I'm a little bit more uh, likely to get a hormone panel, even if they don't answer yes to any of those questions, just to mm-hmm. make sure because they because they are minors. You know, you want to make sure when you're operating on a minor that, yeah, you know, you've crossed out every other thing that could potentially be uh, a cause of their problem before you take them to the operating room. Oh my goodness, are there? Have you found any medications that can help with it rather than have surgery? Yeah, so that's also an excellent question because obviously, you know, I'm a surgeon and, you know, surgeons love to operate, right? But most mm-hmm. patients don't like surgery. And so one of the things that people always ask me is that, you know, is there a supplement or is there anything that I can take that can potentially get rid of it? Now, there are certain medications that can reduce it in some men, um, but there's no single medication that can completely treat and correct gynecomastia in everybody you know, in a predictable manner. Mm-hmm. There's some medicines like tamoxifen or clomiphen um, can act as estrogen blockers or, or you know, and they there can be partial correction, but studies have been done putting men on, on tamoxifen, for instance. Um, but in those studies, they found that a large proportion of them did not get complete correction, and they had to be on the medication for a long term. Um, and so... You know, medications really aren't the way to go if you have true gynecomastia. And I guess we have to talk about what's the difference between true gynecomastia and pseudo-gynecomastia. Yes, Because there, there is a difference, yeah. So to, to kind of make it easy for, for the listeners to kind of visualize, um, even though this is a radio interview, um, there's two types of 
tissue in every man's chest, really in every woman's chest too, but two types. There's breast tissue, otherwise known as glandular tissue, and then there's fatty tissue. And so true gynecomastia, we pretty much refer to having an excess of breast tissue. Um, Now, some of them may have excess fatty tissue as well, but it's really that breast tissue that's in excess, whereas Mm -hmm. pseudogynecomastia means that they just have they have a normal amount of breast tissue, but they have a lot of fatty tissue. And typically you see these in, in guys who are just overweight. Um, now, the chest can still look kind of feminine, even with uh, pseudogynecomastia, but typically when I see guys who have just a lot of excess body fat and a lot of fat mm-hmm. on their chest, I tell, mm-hmm. I tell them that, you know, yeah, we can do surgery, but you may consider doing, you know, you know, a non-surgical route like diet and exercise. And chances are, if you lose enough weight and get to a normal, healthy weight, your chest will get better too. Um, That being said, for true gynecomastia, there's nothing other than surgery that really will treat that um, in a predictable and accurate manner. Um, You have to remove that glandular tissue. You have to cut it out. Um, There's no supplement. There's no medication that's going to predictably in every guy reduce it to the point that they're going to be happy with their chest. What, um, if you were to look at the tissue, what is, mm-hmm. does it look different from the fatty tissue, the glandular versus the fatty? Yeah. So not only does it look different, it feels different too. When, when someone has excess breast tissue and where it's located in a man is also um, a kind of a sign. It's usually located behind the nipple and areola, and it extends out to the side and maybe a little bit uh, to the in, inner part of the chest, too. And it feels it feels firm. It feels firmer than fatty tissue, which feels a little bit softer. But also, when, when you're looking at it, after I remove it, you know, I, breast tissue looks a little bit more white, um, a little bit more uh, maybe off-white, whereas fatty mm-hmm. tissue looks looks yellow. Now, you know, the so I wow. go based on... When I'm operating on people, I go based not on on how it looks, but how it feels. You know, I'm using all my senses. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, not how it tastes and how it smells, but you know, I'm going by look and feel mm-hmm. to to know how much to take out and more importantly, how much to leave behind. Because the purpose of the surgery is not to take out a hundred percent of the tissue in everybody. Um, it's to take out enough to give a normal natural contour. If you take out all the tissue in everybody, you're going to get a fair number of guys who are going to be cratered or caved in or sunken in. We all oh need God. a certain amount of, yeah, we all need a certain amount of tissue under under our skin to support the nipple and the areola and to have a smooth contour. Do you have to remove the nipples when you're doing the surgery? For a, a large majority of gynecomastia cases, no, you don't have to remove the nipple or reposition the nipple. Um the only times where I've had to do that is when the men come in and they just have full-on breasts and their nipple positions are, are low and they have a lot of excess skin. And so the way that you do this is usually with a free nipple graft where you actually remove the areola and nipple, take out all the tissue um, underneath it and the excess skin, and then you and then you put the new nipple and areola size as a skin graft in, in the normal position. And then, like I said, it's not um, the most common technique because most guys mm-hmm. don't present with, with that degree of gynecomastia. However, you know, there, there are plenty of guys who do, and that's really the best surgical option for them. And so if they have, and, and, and just for your listeners, to know if you're that candidate, 
well, it's not just that you have, you know, excess tissue, but also you have hanging skin or you have your nipples are in a really low position. It's almost similar to like women who have low breasts and, and low nipples as opposed to perky breasts and, and, and nipples in the mm-hmm. proper position. Mm-hmm. And there's really no way, no great way to to get a flatter contour and lift the nipple without doing a nipple graft. But like I said, it's not the, yeah, it's not the most common surgery, mm-hmm. surgery that, that, that's done in gynecomastia, just because more guys present with less severe cases than that. Well, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. What kind of an emotional toll does it take on, um, you know, boys in puberty and teenage teenagers and then grown men? It must be very difficult. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I'm glad you actually mentioned that because I think this is one of the things is, you know, as I've become more and more focused on gynecomastia, I've seen kind of like the psychology and the emotional impact of this on guys of all ages. And obviously, like the teenagers, you don't have to have gynecomastia to have a lot of emotional stress as a teenager, right? There's (laughs) there's plenty of reasons to to have stress and, you know, social cliques and is is this person my friend Mm -hmm. or why isn't that person my friend? But Imagine, you know, gym class or you're doing sports or you have to play mm-hmm. shirts versus skins or you're or even you're invited to a pool party and 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 mm-hmm. you're 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 those sorts of simple things that most guys take for granted, you know, teenagers who have this, you know, they have to hide behind and and it carries into adulthood. I mean, one of the things that never ceases to amaze me is the the lens that this can affect a guy's life. Anything from you know, how they sit, you know, they tend to sit with their, you know, slouched, with their shoulders slouched forward to the outfits that they wear. Rarely are you going to see a guy wearing a tighter shirt, you know, they're not, Mm -hmm. they tend not to want to wear lighter colors. Most of these guys are wearing darker colors because it hides it well. You know, they, they wear multiple layers. Some of them wear compression shirts like Under Armour. And, you know, the, the saddest thing, and I remember there was one guy who who I remember in particular, it was maybe like July or August one year, and he's coming in for a consult. And I, I you know, it's maybe about 90 degrees and 95 in Los Angeles. And it was time to do the examination. And he got up and he literally took off four layers of shirts. You know, he had an undershirt, another T-shirt, and then a long sleeve shirt, and Aww. then a jacket. And I Gee. thought to myself, like this is this is what he has to do just to leave the house to feel comfortable in his own skin, and how uncomfortable he must be living in a ninety degree, you know, weather, and and having to do that just to kind of hide hide this thing that's so easily correctable with surgery, and you know, so it's not just you know the the impact on on you know your daily life as far as what you wear and maybe you know where you go but also like on a personal level you know a lot of these guys say you know they 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 feel uncomfortable having you know you know personal or physical relationships um with their partners um you know some of them they they've never taken their shirts off in front of their partners mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and you know it it really can have a wide reaching impact on these guys and it's not just a physical thing it, there is there's a, a lot of emotional impact mm-hmm. as well and the self esteem and self confidence and and I, and I tell these patients I say look I know I've done my job when you can leave your house without thinking about your chest that's oh. how I know I've done my job mm-hmm. and then and then when I when they come back for their 3 6 month 1 year follow up I, I ask them I'm like you know do you, do you think about your chest when you leave the house he's like no and 
that's 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 all the satisfaction in the world for me as a surgeon when I can give them back something that most of us take for granted. Mhm. Mhm. What's involved in the actual surgery itself, and let's talk about um, recovery time and possible um, scarring. Um, right. So the surgeries, the surgery that I do it depends really on what I'm treating so I'll give you a couple of examples okay number one say say a guy comes in and he just he's pretty fit and or very lean and he doesn't have any fatty excess tissue it's just breast tissue that's causing the problem and so in those cases um, liposuction is not going to help at all um, I, I've seen and, guys who and to qualify yeah and go to, ahead to, and and to qualify that it's because of the glandular tissue. Right. So liposuction literally means sucking out fat. And so Mm -hmm. when you have breast tissue, and just like I described before, breast tissue is this thick, white kind of rubbery tissue, and it doesn't suck out. You can't really suck it out um, through a little liposuction cannula. You might be able to break it up, but it doesn't suck out. And and so, you know, when I see these types of patients who – who have just this breast tissue, their treatment is to have it cut out in a very precise mm-hmm. fashion. So sometimes I do these under local anesthesia. Sometimes I do this under um, anesthesia where they're asleep. Depends on the size. Um, mm-hmm. But what it involves, it's an outpatient surgery. It takes between one to three hours, depending on the size and, and the extent of it. And and I go in, and I, if you think of the areola as a clock, I make an incision from like 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock, and I go in and I very carefully um, separate that breast tissue excess from the rest of the structures, the, the muscle and, and the surrounding mm-hmm. fat. And I remove, you know, as much as I think needs to be removed without causing any cratering or, or denting in. And then I go back in and I feather everything out um, you know, to, to make sure there's a smooth transition um, between the rest of the chest and the area where the excess breast tissue was. And then I close and I get put them in a compression vest and they go home the same day. Um, and the difference is if, if, say, they had fatty tissue as well, like you know, a fair amount of fatty tissue in addition mm-hmm. to this breast tissue, well, the the thing that I would add would be liposuction. I typically what I do is I start off with in those cases with the liposuction um, through a very small incision on on usually either through the areola or or um, on the outer part of the chest. And the liposuction does two things. One, it f- removes the fat and flattens the chest in 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 a general sense, the entire chest but it also isolates, for me, even better where that breast tissue is still sitting because what happens is when you do the liposuction, the whole chest starts to flatten down except for that area where the breast tissue is, and it's still kind of coning out. And so it makes it easier for me to go back, go in there through that incision under the areola and get that breast tissue out. Um, but, they, you know, same thing, they have compression vests, um, and that kind of leads a little bit more into the recovery. And the recovery for me is non-negotiable. It's it's very important. It's not just the surgery. They have to ha- have a certain amount of time carved out after the surgery to be able to recover. And usually what I tell guys is, you know, I, I don't want them exercising or doing any strenuous activity for about four weeks, um, maybe a little bit longer if they have had more tissue or more work done. Um, and they were not I want them to wear a compression vest for about that mm-hmm. same period of time. And the reason for that is is quite 
simple. Number one, I don't want them to do anything too active too soon because it could increase the risk of bleeding in the first week or two or increase the risk of a fluid collection. But more importantly, it'll increase the risk of just swelling. You know, every surgery is associated with swelling. And so you don't want to do things that are too active um, to promote even more swelling. And that's what the compression vest helps with too. It keeps that swelling down so that skin can tighten up, you know, a lot faster. With um, I've I've heard from other other um, plastic surgeons that um, often they'll um, tell their patients to drink pineapple juice and to take um, (laughs) anti-inflammatories. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, you'll ask 10 plastic surgeons, you'll get 10 kind of recommendations on how they do their post-op of, yeah, care. I think the pineapple juice helps um, with uh, maybe reduction of bruising after surgery. Um, There are other things you can take, like bromelain. Vitamin C is helpful in the healing process. It's, I'll be honest with you, it's not a, I I don't see very much bruising in my patients uh, at all. Um, and so I, I don't make it mandatory that they drink pineapple juice. I do recommend that they take vitamin C. I think it's helpful, um, but it's not essential for the surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think the most important thing is just to kind of to take it easy, but not to just lay in bed the whole time. This is not one of those surgeries where you're going to be down and out for, for a week or two. You'll be fine to to get up and walk the same day. Um, most guys, if they work desk jobs where they're not doing heavy lifting, they go back to work in three, four days. Um, they're off their pain medications after three days. Um, and, and it's one of those surgeries that a lot of guys tell me, oh, I didn't. I thought it was going to hurt a lot more, and it doesn't, especially the, when you're cutting out breast tissue. Cutting out breast tissue rarely hurts. Um, liposuction, they might be a little bit sore, but after a couple of days, they're doing just fine. And that's the majority of patients feel that way. It's not the exception. That's pretty much mm-hmm. the rule. Well, that's that's really good to know. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I think it's it's one of those things. I mean, you know, guys, we, 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 we try and act tough, but really, you know, women are the stronger <laughs> sex. And, and and so a lot of guys, you, you, you know, they, they're, they're nervous about how much it's going to hurt, you know, and and um, and I tell them, I said, look, in my experience, you know, most guys, they're off their pain medication after a couple of days, and they're they're driving after three, four days once they're off their pain medication, and they're back to work if they're working, you know, a desk job, and mm-hmm. and they don't believe it until they go through that same experience themselves. And then the other thing I'll tell you, Denise, the other thing mm-hmm. that guys are always nervous about is the incisions. How are the incisions going to heal? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're very paranoid or, or nervous about poor scar or noticeable scars. And what I tell them is, listen, in, in my practice, I've never had to revise one of my own incisions. Um, I think partly it's because my technique is very good, but also where that incision is placed right at the junction of the areola and the normal skin, it camouflages very well. It doesn't matter what ethnicity um, someone is, your areola mm-hmm. is always going to be a different color than your native skin. And so when you place that incision right at that junction, it tends to heal very well. Now, where where's the um, where's that located, the areola? So... Yeah, the areolas, well, we all have it. You know, you have a nipple, and then the nipple sits on this brown circle called the areola. Oh, it's the brown circle. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, in some people it's not as brown as in others, but but mm-hmm. it's that darker circle. 
Um, gotcha. And the nipple sits usually sits right yes. in the middle of it. So okay. So when you put the incision right at the bottom part of it, you know, on the border of the mm-hmm. areola and mm-hmm. the skin, it hides very well. It has nothing to do with how much hair a guy has on his chest. I do this on guys with no hair on their chest. <laughs> I don't use the hair to hide the incision. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, guys are ple- pleasantly surprised. And I show them in in the consultation. I show them multiple examples of the incision, super close up, and they're they're pretty surprised how well it heals until they see it on themselves, and then they're like, "Wow, he was right. He knew what he's talking about." So, <laughs> <laughs> I imagine in your area of expertise, you see uh, patients that have had um, poor surgery results from other. Um, Surgeons. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. When, whenever you do a lot of one surgery, you also start seeing you know the the patients who need a revision of that surgery. Thankfully, in my practice, I don't do very many revisions of my own surgery. But sure, I, I see a lot of revisions um, coming in who've had the surgery once, twice, sometimes even three times uh, somewhere else. And typically, mm-hmm. they, they they fall into a couple categories. Number one, it's either too much was taken out or not enough was taken out. And they both present their own challenges. Um, you know, obviously, if not enough was taken out, that's a little bit more straightforward. You go in and yes. you can remove more, right? Yes. The issue becomes um, when too much is taken out and they're sunken in. And I've seen some really, really challenging cases where, you know, they're, they're, you know, there are different options in these cases. The The best option is if you can use the fat that's still remaining in other parts of their chest and kind of rotated into the place where it's, you know, where it's kind of caved in, kind of like mm-hmm. a, you know, you know, we I call it a fat flap. Um, but mm-hmm. the problem is a lot of these guys who are sunken in, they also tend to be low body fat and they're, or they tend to be pretty lean in their chest and they don't have a lot of um, a fat in their chest to kind of take from one place and put it in another. And so, and if you do, then you, you're going to cause a little bit of sunken in where you took the fat from. So another option is to do what's called fat grafting, um, which basically means taking fat from another part of the body, either the belly or the love handles, and and then processing it in the operating room, washing it with antibiotic solution and so on, and then injecting it very carefully into the areas that are, are um, fat deficient. And what I tell guys is that, you know, this technique does work in my hands. I, I've had pretty good success. However, I tell guys that it may require more than one attempt, depending on how sunken in they are when they first come to see me. Um, I always try to overcorrect when I'm doing that, meaning I mm-hmm. put more than I think they even need, because I know that some of it's going to go down. The body's going to burn some of it off, and and so it's one of those that it, that's where kind of like that fine arts background that you were you were ref, referring mm-hmm. to earlier in the mm-hmm. piece comes into play. You have mm-hmm. to you, you, there's no math mathematical equation that tells you exactly how much to put in or exactly how yeah. it should look on the table. It comes from mm-hmm. experience and just judgment and also like an artistic sense. I mean, you have to have an idea of what a, a normal male chest looks like and what makes a chest more masculine. And so. So, yeah, revision surgeries are very challenging. They're kind of like, um, you know, like Forrest Gump says, they're like a box of chocolates. They're, each of them mm-hmm. are different in their own way, and you definitely can't do cookie-cutter procedures uh, for revisions. And then, you know, they're, they're the ones that are really, really difficult where, you know, the, the, the surgery that they had led them to maybe, 
it, it, it damaged the blood supply to their nipple or it damaged the blood supply oh, to the areola or their incisions healed very poor or they had infections um, and it caused the incision to open up. Those those can become more challenging but still very fixable if done correctly and with a sound surgical plan. And so, yeah, I mean, part of the things that I do, I would probably say my in my practice, about 20% of what I do is revision gynecomastia. Interesting. You know, and and they come in all sorts. Let me ask you another question um, relative to the fat grafting. Do Mm -hmm. fat cells um, replicate in that area over time? So that's a great question. Will they gain more volume or, or not? So... yeah, so fat cells are unique uh, in the human body in that we have a certain number of fat cells um, in any given place, and we don't grow new fat cells, um, meaning that when we gain weight, it's not that because we're developing more fat cells, it's because the fat cells that we have are expanding. So fat cells oh. have this amazing capacity to expand and shrink, and so when we lose weight, those same cells are shrinking. And so... When you graft, so when you're doing fat grafting where you're taking fat from somewhere and you're injecting it into the chest, the most important thing is for those fat cells that you're injecting um, to get blood supply into them within the first day or two, okay? That's what's going to keep them alive. Um, And so once they're alive, then they behave like typical fat cells. And so if you gain weight, they'll expand and and your chest will get, you know, fattier Mm -hmm. if you lose weight, you know, they'll shrink and your chest will, you know, get a little bit smaller. And they act and behave just like fat cells would from where, wherever you took it from. Um, so that's, that's, in, that's the one thing that sets fat cells diff- apart from, say, skin cells. I mean, our skin cells turn over, you know, frequently, mm-hmm. but, but, mm-hmm. Fat, but fat cells don't. We're, we have a certain number. And, and, and so when you do liposuction of any part of the body, you're removing that certain number, but you're, rema- you're leaving, you're leaving, you have to leave some fat cells behind to have a good contour. However, if you gain weight, and I tell this to all my liposuction patients, if you gain weight, it can come back. The, the, that look can come back because those fat cells that are remaining can really expand. So be interesting to look under a microscope what they look like. <laughs> Yeah, they kind of, you know, they're not too interesting under a microscope. But but the other thing, now that you mentioned microscope, the other thing that's interesting is that when you're doing fat grafting, it's it's not just a matter of you're not liposuctioning from one area and just injecting. You have to harvest these fat cells very gently because if you if you're very aggressive with how you suck the fat out, mm-hmm. um, you can damage the the wall of the cell and it's useless. You have to have you know, intact fat cells that you're grafting. And and it's you don't have a microscope there to you know to tell you that, you know, what you're injecting is is in you know intact or not. You just have to be gentle when you're harvesting. It's a different case than when you're just liposuctioning an area to get it flatter. Mm-hmm. Here you're not I'm not lipoing from the belly to get it flatter. I'm liposuctioning to, to harvest fat cells that I can use somewhere else. Um, so it, te- it is very technique driven um, and, and like I said, I, it just becomes a judgment call about how much to inject and, and knowing whether that person tends to be a fat burner or a fat retainer just naturally um, as far as how much to inject. That must have taken quite a while for you to get down well, yeah, to I mean, techniques. It, I mean, one, I mean, it's, a, it's quite a road to get 
to be a plastic surgeon. Like you mentioned, I mean, I did, you know, five years of general surgery and then three years Mm -hmm. of plastic surgery training. And then I've been in practice now for about eight years. And so, yeah, I mean, I think any plastic surgeon who never changes their technique um, just doesn't show you know, an ability to learn. I mean, I mm-hmm. learn from almost every case that I do. In every case, mm-hmm. I have like an aha moment, I'm like, oh, I can probably use this in a case, you know, in the future. And I think that's what it comes down to. I mean, being able to hone your technique and do things that, you know, I, the the way that I, even the way that I do gynecomastia cases now aren't, are, are different than the way that I would do them five years ago because I've, mm-hmm. I've accrued all this experience and all this knowledge, and it's not something you get in a textbook necessarily. You can't read about this. This is just by doing it and, and getting better at it and being more precise and, and, and really and being willing to, to say, yeah, this is a good technique. That's not a good technique. I'm not going to do it this way anymore. I'm going to do it this way. And not having the ego about saying, well, maybe I, I, you know, I, I could have done that better. Mm-hmm. Well, with the advancements in technology, are you finding uh, new tools to work with that make your job easier? Yeah, I think you know where where the advances in technology tend to help the most is with with the um, different modalities of liposuction. So there's different types things such as um, you know just traditional liposuction where you're just injecting this mm-hmm. solution of uh, saline with lidocaine and adrenaline and then you go in with a with a cannula and you suction out um but there's a, other modes of liposuction too like ultrasound liposuction like which which the trade name I think is Vaser um where you're going in with an ultras and the cannula sends out ultrasound waves that kind of emulsify or, or kind of shock the, the fat cells, and then you you go in and then you can remove the fat, and that can help also with some skin tightening. There are things also that I don't use anymore, like Smart Lipo, which is a laser-guided liposuction, um, and, and only because I don't feel like it, it makes much of a difference in, as far as, um, and for your listeners, if, if they don't know what Smart Lipo is, it's basically, it's a, you go in with a laser probe, and it, it, it heats to a certain temperature, a set temperature, and what that does is two things. It's supposed to kind of destroy the fat cells or melt, quote-unquote, melt the fat cells, but also it helps um, heat up the underlying skin to, to improve with skin tightening. Um, I just don't find that in, in, the, in most guys it's, it's necessary, and there's, you know, there's a little bit of risk as well with it, um, and so I, I don't do that anymore, but I think for some guys, ultrasound guided liposuction is helpful because some some guys have just really fibrousy fat in their chest that traditional hmm. liposuction can't get. Um, and um, but I think the most important thing is knowing that if they have true excess breast tissue, mm-hmm. you gotta cut it out. You have to cut it out. Mm-hmm. You can't do liposuction on it. Doesn't matter. Even Vaser, nothing will break up and suck out real dense, rubbery breast tissue. Have you ever worked on anybody that has um, a skin condition where they scar quite easily? It can be a genetic, there's a genetic component to it. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, do you mean as far as like developing keloids or hypertrophic scars? Yes. Like in other parts of the body? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think think, um, a lot of African-Americans who come in 
to see me. Um, that's their number one concern: is oh, am I going to keloid here? And and listen, it's I've you know I've knock on wood I've never had an issue with that type of uh, healing in any of these surgeries. Um, I think it's it's one of those things. It just depends. If if I had a patient who came in and I saw that everywhere on their body that they even had a scratch or a cut, it formed mm-hmm. in a huge keloid, I'd probably tell them that look, there's a, a much higher chance that you might keloid your incisions, and whether you know, and you have to weigh the risks of of that versus the benefit of having a, a flatter, more contoured chest. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, if you do have a keloid and you have a great chest, well, that keloid scar is going to detract from it, and you're still not going to want to take your shirt off. Um, fortunately, I haven't come across that situation, but, you know, the treatment of keloids is, is, is kind of tricky because, you know, you, know, you can inject them with uh, steroids, you can, you can cut them out, you, the, end, the, the most, uh, I guess, aggressive treatment is radiation, which can help, but oh. a lot of these, like you said, it, it, it has a hereditary component, um, mm-hmm. And the problem with keloids is when you treat them, almost half of them come back in almost half the cases. And so, like I said, fortunately, I haven't had to, to, to encounter that in mm-hmm. someone who has active keloids. Um, I've treated keloids before in other body parts and pretty successfully, like from ear, ear piercings or uh, from other surgical scars. Mm-hmm. Um, but I tell them the same thing, that, you know, we treat the keloid, you know, there's a chance that it can come back and we'd have to treat it again and again. Um, but that being said, a lot of patients who, you know, who are African-American who come for this surgery or even Middle Eastern, darker-skinned people, mm-hmm. their, incision, their incisions still heal fantastic. I mean, sometimes even even better than, than Caucasians. Um, and so I put their mind at ease when I show them countless mm-hmm. before and afters of their same race or ethnicity and show them that how these incisions are healing so well. And then they, they, they relax about it then. Hmm. Uh, listeners, for those of you that want to actually see pictures of um, the doctor's work, we do have those posted on our website. So be sure you take a look at them. There's three different pictures. Now, Yeah, and of, um, course, of course, if they go, want no, even a more extensive... Yeah, even a, in a, a more extensive look uh, of before and afters. I probably have forty or fifty before and afters on on my website, uh, Los Angeles Gynecomastia dot org, um, and the other site is just my name, Dr. Dodvan Plastic Surgery dot com, and that's Dr. Dodvan. And and there there are pictures on both of those sites, and just to get. You know, because a lot of guys, when they come in and want to see pictures, well, obviously they want to see pictures of chests that look kind of like theirs beforehand. So mm-hmm, uh, I put mm-hmm. a huge variety, whether it's mm-hmm. one-sided gynecomastia, a little bit older age, teenagers, you know, bodybuilders, you know, all the whole gamut. To, so so people can say, okay, that's my chest, and that's how it can look bef- after. This is a guy to go to. So <laughs> For sure. Well, I think we've had just a, a wonderful interview with you today. Um, we covered pretty much everything. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I mean, I think it's it's the I think the last thing that, that I'd want to say is that look, gynecomastia it's it's a more common problem than most people recognize, mm-hmm. um, and and it actually has real life ramifications and impact on, on men's lives. And it's not a trivial thing. It's not it's the butt of a lot of jokes, you know, and 
Um, it has a lot of kind of kind of mean-spirited nicknames for it as well, but it, it's a real condition, um, and it affects men in a real way. And I just want guys to know, and even pe- people who know someone who has this, mm-hmm. I want them to know that there's actually a very predictable and accurate and successful treatment. And one of the great things about gynecomastia surgery is that when you have the surgery done, there's a high chance that it won't ever come back and that your results will be permanent. And these are the things that you can't really promise in a lot of things in plastic surgery. For Like when you do a facelift, you know, or when you do a breast lift, I mean, you can't mm-hmm. cure gravity. And so these things tend to need to be redone, you know, every eight, ten years or so. But gynecomastia, you have the surgery done, and it should be a relatively permanent result. And and so I want to kind of leave your listeners with that, that it's, one, it's more common than you think, and there's a very successful treatment for it. Um, and, yeah, and I think that that's kind of the message that I'm trying to get out there. Well, I think it's a really a really great message. Thank you so much well, thank for coming you. on our show. Thank you, Denise. You're welcome. Thank you so much for uh, for taking the time and 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 uh, and being you know listening to to these long-winded answers about something that I actually <laughs> am very passionate and care a lot about. But I think hopefully it, it gave um, it gave a lot of information for your listeners. Oh, and, oh um, absolutely, I'd be absolutely. And happy to anybody, yeah, and I'd be happy to to come back anytime and talk about other areas okay. of plastic surgery as well. Wonderful, wonderful. We'll definitely okay. um, reach out to you. Well, thank you very All much, right. and and you have a good Bye-bye rest of the day. Now. You too. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, listeners, that pretty much wraps up our show for today. Uh, extremely informative, and um, I encourage all of you to get a hold of the doctor if, in fact, um, you know someone or you need his services. Please join us again next week. Uh, Thursday, 4 o'clock, you joining us. Bye-bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have. And follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit gotcancernowwhat.com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What?